Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. everyone and welcome back to the front line with joe and joe joe Pasillo, as always joined by joe resinello and once more dear brothers and sisters let us go into the breach on the veritas catholic radio network 1350 on your am dial 103.9 on your fm dial spreading the truth of the catholic faith to the new york city metropolitan area two things download the app share it with your friends you'll have access to all of our station's content and if you like what joe and i do you can find us all over social media facebook youtube twitter like subscribe share follow do all that fun stuff help us out today very pleased and honored to be welcoming back a friend of the program dr peter kuznevsky and um we think this is an important topic obviously uh, Dr. Kwasinski thinks it's an important topic because he wrote a book about it. And the book is available at TAM Books. It's titled Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence, Three Gifts of God for Liturgy and for Life. I'm particularly interested, uh, Dr. K, in the silence part because that's certainly what I need as a, uh, as a Catholic man. Welcome back to the program, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. It's always great to be here, Joe and Joe. We should, I feel like we should have a direct line because we see each other so often. <laughs> This is a, this I love is a it. I love thing. it. So, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky, for those of you who are not familiar, familiar, he taught uh, theology, philosophy, music, and art history uh, in various undergraduate and graduate institutions from 1998 to 2018. Uh, he's directed choirs from 1994 to the present. Uh, today, he is a full-time uh, writer, speaker, editor, and composer, known for his public advocacy of traditional Catholicism, especially in the liturgical sphere. And his his work has been translated into 18 languages. So, uh, like we said, great to have Dr. Kuznevsky back. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. We'll have a great conversation. We always begin with a prayer, Peter. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Well, as Joe said, I think this is a very important conversation because I think we could do a lot better as a church when it comes to music. I'm I'm just making a sweeping statement. Um, you don't think said, so, really? <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. I mean, I sometimes, you know, it, it's difficult. I go to mass. I, my kids, you know, are going crazy. It's it's hard sometimes to really get into it the way I'd like to. But I sometimes sit back and I say, gosh. Um, this song, where did it come from? Um, it's definitely not, you know, aiding <laughs> like the 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 mode that I should be in as I sit before our Lord. Uh, so, like with that said, though, why is great classical music of Western civilization morally and intellectually good for us? And why, conversely, is certain other forms of music harmful? Right. Well, so the, in the first part of my book, this is what this is what I talk about is uh, what music is, uh, why does it affect us as deeply as it does, 
and why, therefore, should we be careful about what we consume sonically? You know, I, I, I frequently use the analogy of food to music or food and drink to music because, uh, and in fact, Shakespeare is the one who used that. He beat me to it centuries ago um, because, you know, he says, uh, uh, if, you know, if music be the food of love, play on. It's a famous quotation from Shakespeare. But the, the idea is that, that, of course, we know, and in fact, we're maybe even hyper-conscious about this nowadays, that when we eat junk food, it has a bad effect on our physique and on our health in general. It weighs us down. It, and we also know that uh, if we eat healthily, then it actually uh, makes us feel better. And over time, it has a good effect. So I think with, with sonic food, right, um, what, the music we take in through our ears, it goes deep into our soul. Um, it affects us immediately. There's a kind of instant effect that music has. If we, if we hear, you know, uh, if we hear marching music, or we hear dancing music, or we hear, um, you know, uh, um, horror movie music, you know, what, whatever kind of music we hear, if it's well constructed for its purpose, it instantly has an effect on us. And you, yes, we can call it an emotional effect, and that is how primarily what it is. It stirs up our emotions, um, but it's a deeper than emotional effect. It's it also um, I think that music has a way of carrying us off to a different place. Um, and where is that place that it's carrying, carrying us off to? You know, do we want to be in that place if we really thought about it, right? Uh, do we, you know, do we want to, do we want music to carry us to places that expand our human nature, our human consciousness, our human aspirations, um, do we want to be ennobled and elevated and uplifted by music and in a sense, even drawn to God through music? And this is true of all music um, or can be true of, of any kind of music. Or, or are we going to let music, in a sense, carry us down into anger or lust or whatever other bad emotions that actually you know, tarnish the image of God in us? Um, so that's why I say it's so important what we listen to. And there is music. Uh, from all centuries, all today, all the way back to the centuries of Gregorian chant, that has this elevating and improving effect on us when we when we consume it, as it were. Um, and then I think there's music that has this this degrading effect on us, and that's something that's been recognized for as long as we have human beings writing about this subject, all the way back to Plato, Aristotle, before Christ. They talk about how music can either elevate or depress, right? And, and that's always been Dr. Peter Kuznevsky is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're talking about sacred music. That's always been my thing. Um, you know, once I once I started practicing the faith again and going to mass uh, mass um, as as I should, like every week, or and you start to pay attention to the music, and you say, okay, you use the word Joe in the first question. Use the word harmful. If you if you hear the, the song, uh, were you there? Okay, I think Johnny Cash made it famous, right? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Or Amazing Grace. Okay, I'm being charitable here. These are Protestant songs, okay? I'm not going to say they're they're not harmful. I don't feel harmed by them in any way. But I've been to masses where they play Amazing Grace or, or uh, Were You There? And I've also been to masses where the Sisters of Life um, are, are, are singing, are, are performing the music uh, as a choir, Okay. And 10 out of 10 times I'm taking the Sisters of Life because of what you said. Not that the other songs are bad, okay? You can argue about the they're Protestant, but they're not bad. I don't feel they're harmful, but I'm not elevated by them. When the sisters sing as a choir, okay, 
doesn't hurt that a couple of them are actually former opera singers. Um, your, your, your soul is elevated. Talk about that. You mentioned it. Talk about that a little bit more. Let's take that a little bit deeper. I, I don't think, I know I didn't understand it back in the day. I don't think many people understand the importance of moving your soul when you're at mass. And that's what that beautiful music, along with Gregorian chant, also you mentioned that, that's what it does. And it's important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I mean, I would just say as a general statement that um, one of the one of the requirements of a virtuous life is to put your passions in order. This is something, again, that everybody agrees on who's ever talked about this subject from Aristotle and the Bible all the way down. Um, because and why is that? Because our passions, our emotions, our feelings are basically a mess. I mean, as fallen human beings, they are a mess. And they, they can get messier and messier all the time. There's almost no limit to how messy they can get, as we can see looking at the world around us. Um, and so we actually have to we have to make concrete steps and take really deliberate steps to control and order and purify our passions. That doesn't mean suppressing them. They're not evil, but it means putting order into them. And how do we put that order into our into our passions and emotions? Well, one classic way of doing it is asceticism, you know, uh, that is, you know, getting up early or taking a cold shower or fasting or, you know, just in a way punishing yourself, as St. Paul says, to, I mean, to a reasonable amount, to a moderate amount, so that you are kind of bending the stick in the opposite direction from the pleasure seeking that is our inclination as, as animals and as fallen human beings. Um, and, but music is another powerful way of putting order into our emotions. You know, when we listen to, um, I mean, I'm going to say this, but I think it's true from experience, but people have to try it for a while to see why, why I claim this is true. But I think listening to a composer like Mozart or Bach or Palestrina, for that matter, I mean, there are many examples I could choose. This music will put order into your soul. It really will. It, it will calm your emotions. It will purify them. It will make you start to long for higher things in life um, and not be content with the sort of beer and hot dogs lifestyle that so many Americans, you know, are, are limiting themselves to. And that's the, that's the most innocent. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to use other examples, right? I'm just using that as a kind of placeholder for like, you know, a, a, a sort of a lifestyle in which people don't really aspire to anything great or even anything particularly good. Right. Um, so, but, but I mean, I, that's, that's just a general statement. The reason why bad church music can be harmful is not always that it disorders your emotions. I mean, sometimes the music is so is is so dumb that it it just bores you to tears, or it just makes you roll your eyes. That's not really disorder. Uh, but the problem is that it can that the, the the type of music we play in church or listen to tells us something about what we think we're doing, what the liturgy is, what mass is, who God is, who we are in relationship to God. So it can be harmful in terms of of habituating us to a false understanding of what worship is and of what the Catholic Church is. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? So yes. it's a more subtle kind of harm. If, you, if you're, let's put it this way. If the style of music in church is like, um, you know, it's, it's played on the piano and the guitars with sort of lounge chords and the words are kind of diffuse and not particularly Catholic, and very communitarian and kind of like a big hug, you know, we're all hugging each other, whatever, because this is the way a lot of church music is now. Um, that is That falsifies what we are doing when we go to church. And it actually harms, it, it, it pushes people further away from the act of adoring Almighty God 
in a transcendent act of worship that carries us out of ourselves. Um, you know, liturgy is not like a big group hug and a group therapy session, right? That's not what it is. And when and when it turns into that kind of thing, um, it's it's I would actually say not only bad for our souls because we don't get the the worship that we need of God, we don't order ourselves to God as we need to, but it's also insulting to God. You know, it's um, it's like it's it would be like giving a bouquet of like wilted roses to your wife and be like. Here, honey, have some flowers. Oh, sorry, they're dead. You know, I mean, it's, it, this is this is the problem, right? We need to give God the best and the worthiest uh, and the most um, awesome that we can. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing his new book. It's out from Tan Books: Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. I definitely want to get into silence in a little while. Three gifts of God for liturgy and for life. I want to say this to you, Dr. K, before I um, before I throw it over to Joe. Is that you want to arouse somebody's anger, all right? Uh, uh, let's say uh, uh, I don't want to sound judgmental, but if you want to arouse the anger of an average Catholic, tell them that the mass is only about Jesus Christ, and it's not about you. It's not about holding hands. It's not about hugging. It's not about the Lord's Supper. It is the the sacrifice, you know, of the mass. You start saying all those things. I, my experience, my experience. Let me say it like that. You will arouse people's anger in a way that you say, "What the heck did I say?" All I said was the mass was about God. The mass is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about worshiping God. That's that that doesn't go over too well. We can talk about that later. Joe Resinello. I want I want to expand on what you said, Peter, um, because I agree with you. Ultimately, I guess music from a Christian perspective, there's I guess like it, this is in some Catholic circles, um, but mostly Protestant. There's praise and worship. Um, now I've gone to that where they've had the Eucharist exposed and people playing music. Um, there's that. And then there's the mass, two mm. different things. And I think we yeah. have to differentiate between the two. And you, I think you did to a degree. I'd like to just expand upon it, but also from a scholarly perspective, I, I work in a legal capacity and I am a very prima facie guy. What the document says is what you do. And and I've always had issue. Uh, if someone writes something officially in the church, um, they didn't just write it to be forgotten. It, it, there's a reason. So you follow it. The, the dogma, you know, the catechism, it's written down. Follow it. It's not my church. I have no authority, nor do any of us. We're here to follow it. What does the church say about how music should be presented in the liturgy, A? And then let's differentiate that from, say, a praise and worship you yeah. know, event, say, at Franciscan University. Let's just say sure. where someone – you know, I'm just – I'm not picking on Franciscan. I'm just no, no. using that as, an, as a general statement um, – because I think they're two different venues and the music should be different. But sadly, I think they've been blended. Yes. Okay. You, you've asked me about 10 questions. I know. I'm crazy. I'm a crazy That's okay. person. <laughs> uh, so the, the first thing I want to start with is your point about magisterial documents, because you're really asking, what does the church teach about sacred music? And I talk about that a lot in my book. I quote all the documents um, all the way down to the present time. 
well, not exactly to the present time because Pope Francis doesn't have a lot to say about this, and maybe that's just as well. Um, but in any case, uh, no. So, so every every pope in modern times has talked about sacred music. Um, from Leo the Thirteenth, I quote him. Most people don't even know that he talked about chant. Uh, Pius the Tenth, who was very very important. Uh, I'll come back to him. Um, Pius the Eleventh, Pius the Twelfth, uh, um, John the Twenty Third, not so much. Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, they all talked about sacred music. And although they have different points of emphasis, um, their, their teaching is remarkably coherent and consistent. And I show that in the book. And Vatican II is, is, gives Vatican II in Sacro Sanctum Concilium, which is a document on the sacred liturgy promulgated in 1963, that document has the longest most official and most conservative teaching about sacred music that you will find in any church document, practically, uh, which, which shocks people, right? That, that Vatican II says Gregorian chant should have chief place in liturgical services. It says that. It's right there in black and white on the page. You know, Latin should be retained. There can be space for vernacular as well, but Latin should be retained. Chant should have pride of place. Polyphony should be used. The pipe organ is the chief of, of church instruments, Right. No mention of pianos and guitars. I mean, it's it's amazing how conservative, how traditional is really a better word. The teaching of Vatican II is on this particular subject. Um, I do want to just add as a sort of footnote to all of that, that because we have this consistent teaching, whenever we have a consistent teaching of the church on something and the teaching on music does go back many centuries. It's not just limited to the ones I mentioned. Um, the faithful can develop the mind, can acquire the mind of the church in such a way that the faithful themselves, you and me, can actually say, if a later pope or bishop comes along and contradicts that completely, we can say, no, with all due respect, this is what the church has always taught. This is why the church has taught it. And therefore, we are going to hold to what the church teaches. I mean, I'm a traditionalist. That's what I think. So I don't have church authority in the technical sense. But I do have the census today. I have an understanding of the Catholic faith that comes to me from, from the popes and the magisterium of the past and of all ages, really. Um, and therefore, I do, I, I do think there's a sense in which there can be times when we have legitimate, let's say, um, when we butt horns with certain church authorities who are not uh, teaching clearly. But that's a whole separate conversation, so I don't necessarily want to get into that right now since we're trying to focus here on music. Um, the, the point you made about adoration, praise, and worship. Let me just try to make. Let me try to use an image here to, to help. I like to see Catholic prayer. Um, let's just say in common with other people, not to talk about private prayer, as a series of concentric circles. The heart, the the, the bullseye, the center of the of that is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the Eucharistic sacrifice. That's the highest act of worship that we have as Catholics. It's the center of our faith, the source and summit. And it's also, therefore, the most solemn, the most formal, the most, um, the most powerful, the most transcendent of all of the forms of public prayer we have. And it should look like that. We should experience it that way. That's the center of the circle. But it doesn't exhaust the whole terrain of public prayer. Outside of the Mass, you have other sacramental rites. You have the Divine Office. Morning prayer, evening prayer, lauds, vespers, compline, all these things are part of the church's public worship, and they're outside the mass, and they have their own music, right? And then outside of that, you might have something like processions, 
for Corpus Christi, where people are going to be singing vernacular hymns popular in their area, you know, um, or in their country, right? Um, you have holy hours, benediction, um, and, and other forms of venerating blessed sacrament. You could have then uh, Bible studies, prayer meetings, you know, campfire gatherings, summer camps for boys and girls. I mean, all these things can be public activities of prayer, uh, but there, but as you get further out from the center, the rules are looser, right? Uh, and they ought to be um, not so loose that it becomes, you know, ridiculous. But you know, when we're, I just went. In fact, just this past Sunday evening, I was in Colorado visiting my daughter, who's a backpacking instructor this summer for Camp Voitiwa. It's called. It's it's just it's just outside of Boulder, up in the mountains. Beautiful summer camp. They have hundreds of and hundreds of grade school or middle school and high school kids, boys and girls coming through this camp every summer. My, my daughter's done it twice. And they have this campfire singing all the time. They're always singing. And the songs are, they're either silly songs, the way that, you know, I sang in Boy Scout summer camp when I was growing up, you know, where you make funny noises and you shout at each other and this kind of stuff, or, or, they're, or they're religious songs. But nobody there really thinks that, that, kind, that those religious songs around the campfire are what we should be singing at mass. I mean, these are different spheres, right? So that's my point. We have to make these distinctions, concentric circles radiating outwards. And when you're at the, on the heart of those concentric circles, you want the music that is most elevated, dignified, contemplative, prayerful. That's what we, that's what we should be singing when we're in the very presence of our Lord himself in the Blessed Sacrament. Dr. Peter Kuznetsky is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing his new book. Uh, it's available at Tam Books. Please buy the book from the publisher. Uh, Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence, Three Gifts of God for Liturgy and for Life. Real quick, Dr. K, uh, aside from Tan Books, where can our audience members buy the book? Um, well, I mean, it, 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 uh, they can get it from the usual online distributors. I would also okay. recommend going to, if you have a local Catholic bookstore, ask them to carry it. Um, if you're in Canada, Sunrise Marian Distribution um, would be the place to get it from. I think if you, it, we're at the point now in Canada where if you distribute a Catholic book, you might get arrested. But that's a whole other conversation uh, about Canada. I, I have I, yeah, I got a comment. And I want to hand it back to Joe. But I will tell you this. I, a lot of times when it comes to like the conversation we're having, I can only go by my, my own experience. And two experiences that I've had is one is uh in arizona all right where i now live uh i've been there for about a year and a half the the parish that we've settled on is a rather large uh church a rather large structure it's a large parish and the music is nothing but latin and reverend everything that you're describing which should be in the mass the sanctus the Agnus day all of it okay the gloria which i want to talk to you after the break about why we have 50,000 different versions of the Gloria, which maybe we should just do it in Latin and get back to the, the regular. This way, nobody can roll their eyes when the Gloria comes on. Um, and the other is this. I would challenge anybody who would say, uh, who might uh, doubt what we're saying about, about like the movement of the soul when it comes to listening to uh, very reverent and sacred music. My wife and I on our honeymoon, honeymoon went to Italy, and one of the days we did a day trip through Tuscany. And one of the stops with it was at San Antimo Abbey. I think it, the building itself is about a thousand years old. And every day the diocesan priests come in. They don't look like diocesan priests. They look like monks, but they're diocesan priests. They come in for an hour. They do Gregorian chant. They, they, they pray whatever is to be prayed at that time of the day in Gregorian chant. If you don't demand of your parish when you go back home that they infuse that somehow, some way into the liturgy, then there's something wrong with you. So I guess my, my larger thing in all this, 
a little bit about Gregorian chant because I've never been moved by anything more than I'm moved by that. Yes, yes. Gregorian chant. Do you, do you, do you want me to, to speak to that? Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. I mean, one one of the things I do in part two of my book, I talk. I have a whole chapter, a big chapter about the history and the spirituality of Gregorian chant and why it is the most perfect music for the Catholic liturgy. And by the way, I also say this is true of all Christian liturgies, all all, all apostolic sacramental Christian liturgies, i.e. Eastern Orthodox, Byzantine Catholics, Roman Catholics, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you have a valid liturgy and, and a tradition that goes back to the apostles, you have chant. You have chant that is specific to your liturgical rite. That's true of the Maronites, the Melkites, the Copts, you know, the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, the Ambrosians, the Dominican use. I mean, every single real liturgical rite in the history of the church has a special kind of chant. Gregorian chant is what we call the music of the Latin rite or the Roman rite, okay? It's a, it's a specific type of chant. It's just that the Roman rite is by such a huge measure the largest rite uh, of apostolic sacramental churches in the world that people tend to think of it as almost as if it's the only one, right? So Gregorian chant really looms large in people's minds. But I, I always encourage people, go online and listen to some Byzantine chant. Listen to some Melkite chant, you know? Listen to the Copts, the Copts in Egypt chanting, right? It sounds very Arabian, you know, very, un, very exotic, right? But this is all authentic liturgical chant. And what is chant? Chant I mean, the word chant just comes from cantus in Latin, which means song. So it, we're kind of using redundant, we're, we're using, um, to a certain extent, redundant words. But I think it's helpful to have a specific word that means religious singing. Chanting is when you have a text from the liturgy, or from, you know, usually from scripture, or it's a prayer, or the preface of the mass, um, whatever it might be, whatever text, it's always a liturgical text, a text used in liturgy, that is sung to some kind of melody, either a more ornate, elaborate melody or a very simple tone when you're trying to say a lot of words, as in a reading. Um, and this chanting has a kind of natural ebb and flow to it. The point is not so much the music as the words. The music is in service to the words. Um, and you, you get this very much with chant. It's one, it's called monophonic music. It's one voice. It's not polyphony. It's not many voices singing different things. It's everybody singing in unison. And um, the melodies are, are meant to support and illuminate the meaning of the words. Um, and you can, you can tell this. I, I give very specific examples in the book. In fact, there are a couple of chants that I reproduce in the book. And then I comment, you know, word for word, line by line on what's going on in this chant, how the music is illuminating the meaning of the words. Um, and, you know, of course, people could look at that and say, well, I don't know what that sounds like. Well, that's fine. You just go onto YouTube or Spotify. You type in the name of the chat. Guarantee it, it'll be up in two seconds, right? So it's not hard to find these things. Um, in fact, it's easier to find chants on YouTube than it is to find it in a lot of Catholic churches, which is a problem. You know, it shouldn't be that way. Um, so this the chant, it's peaceful. It's focused on the word of God. Um, it's 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 contemplative. It puts you in a kind of meditative frame of mind. It calms you. It makes you think about God, about heaven, about the angels and saints. Um, and it it sort of gives you, I would say, it's meant to sanctify and supernaturalize your mind so that when you go out of church, having been in that sort of purifying bath of meditation, it gives you like a, a different perspective on things, right? A more eternal perspective. Like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I here? What are my priorities, right? Is God really first? 
Am I taking care of my prayer life, etc.? This is the kind of thing we should be thinking about, not necessarily in mass, but as a result of mass, right? It should have this kind of ripple effect on the rest of our lives. And the worst part about contemporary, a lot of contemporary church music, both Protestant, evangelical, and Catholic, is that it's written in a sort of second-rate imitation of worldly styles of music. And so what that does when you go into a church where they're just playing ditties with their guitars and so on is, well, it either bores you because you're thinking, gosh, I could listen to so much better music on the radio. Like you could, the church can never compete with pop culture ever, ever, ever. We shouldn't even try because we'll always be second or third, fourth rate compared to what the stars, the, pro the professional stars, are, they do that for a living, right? That's what they mm -hmm. do. Um, but but the, the bigger problem is that that in church, we never get that kind of transcendent contact with the Lord that makes us think about our whole life under the aspect of eternity, right? It we just we just get a kind of like it's like in church we're just getting the same thing in a way that we get in the secular world, mm -hmm. and that's also true of homilies, right? When people when pastors are preaching about immigration and climate and and liberal cause of the Democratic Party, whatever feminism, if they do that, it's just well then why not just turn on CNN? You know, I mean like I don't need to hear this from the pulpit. Dr. Peter Kuznetsky, we're going to, we want to come back to that point. I want to come back to that point. I'm glad you brought it up. You're with the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. We're having a great discussion with Dr. Peter Kuznetsky. Good music, sacred music, and silence. Three gifts of God for liturgy and for life that's available at Tan Books, online booksellers, and please ask your local bookstore at your parish to carry it. We're going to be right back. Don't go anywhere. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. We're way in the breach. We're discussing good music, sacred music, and silence. Three gifts of God for liturgy and for life. That is available at Tan Books and other outlets. The author, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky, is joining us here at The Frontline with Joe and Joe. This is a great conversation. Um, we, we, we ended in the break, like you said. If, if you if you want the secular stuff, then then go, by all means, absorb, uh, you know, consume it. But in mass... <laughs> but in, look, if I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to anybody, okay? I, I, I like sitting around with a scotch and a cigar listening to Pink Floyd on YouTube music. I do, okay? There's a time for that. There's time for that. In Mass, that's that's a different time. So uh, pick up on, on what you were talking about towards the end of the break. Sure. And, and you know, I, I, think, I think I would say that when we're, when we're evaluating church music and what works best for the liturgy, we have to look at so many different levels. We should look at the level of what is the text of this music saying? That's the most obvious level. If you look at the text of Gregorian chant, guess what? 95% of it is taken straight from the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. It is the, for the church, the Bible is the book that we should all be absorbing to one degree or another. And how did medieval illiterate peasants absorb it? Oh, they knew it very well because they had 
mystery plays that were put on constantly throughout the year that, that reproduced the stories and teachings of the Bible. They had stained glass windows. They had preaching. We have lots of medieval preaching. It was very scriptural, right? And these people lived in an oral culture, so they had minds like a steel trap, right? So, I mean, I'm telling you, any medieval peasant could run circles around almost any Catholic nowadays in terms of knowledge of the faith. So let's not have this kind of high, this, you know, condescending attitude towards our so-called dark ages forebears. They were way more sophisticated than we were in some respects, right? They just didn't have technology, which maybe was part of the reason <laughs> why they were they were better off in some ways, in some ways, not in other ways. Um, but so, but the, the lyrics of a lot of contemporary Catholic church music, it's not taken from the word of God. It's just made up. And, and when you look at it, some of it's heretical. This has been well documented. There's um there's a there's a long article at Adoramos Bulletin online. In fact, you can find several articles at Adoramos that give detailed analyses of of currently in use hymnals, showing that there are lyrics in there that are heretical, according to the teaching of the Catholic Church on dogma. You know, they say things like, "We are the bread and wine." You know, we we should. Uh, feed each other and you know they say or, or they say like jesus is in the bread and wine which is lutheran consubstantiation that was condemned by the council of trent i mean the the hymns are awful in terms of the lyrics okay so that's the first level they, their bishops ought to be out there with a big red stamp that says reject 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 on so many of these hymns right um second level is the quality of the music i, I said earlier i was going to get back to Pius the 10th so now i'm going to get back to him Pius X in 1907 issued what he called a legislation, uh, he called it a code of legislation for sacred music in a, doc, in a document called Trale Solicitudine. Um, and he said all sacred music should have, should have sanctity or holiness, goodness of form, that is artistic excellence, and universality, that is it should be such as not to alienate anybody who listens to it. Um, and, and so with regard to sanctity or holiness, he, he basically says, this is music that should be, that should be saturated with prayer and should, should be suggestive of prayer to everyone who listens to it. Um, with regard to, art, uh, with regard to um, uh, universality, he just means something like, you know, the kind of music that African Catholics are playing in the Zaire Rite is not going to fly in Cincinnati or, well, maybe it would, but I mean, it's not going to fly in Lincoln, Nebraska or something. I mean, this is a different, it's too specific to that culture um, and vice versa. Something that might be, you know, appropriate in Germany might not work in, you know, in uh, Indonesia or something, but chant, religious chant, liturgical chant of the sort we've been talking about is something that appeals universally. Everybody can understand it. And in fact, when the missionaries went out from Europe in the, in the 16th century to the 19th and 20th centuries, right? First South America, Central America, then later on Africa, the missionaries always brought Gregorian chant with them. And guess what? The natives loved it. They gobbled it up. They started singing it themselves. To this day, Cardinal Seurat says in Ghana, where he's from, if I'm not mistaken, um, he says all the people in Ghana know how to sing chant by heart because they learned it so well in throughout the 20th century. And they still do to this day in the Novus Order, they sing Latin chant in Ghana, right? That, that's, they, they've got one up on, on, on a lot of the rest of us, right? So chant is universal, but finally it has artistic excellence. And this is just something that, that musicians know. If you study music, I'm a composer, I know what I'm talking about. I know lots of other composers. 
Um, and if, if you study music, you know chant is some of the most exquisite melodies ever written in the, in the, in the history of the world. They are beautiful, beautifully constructed in, in every technical sense, right? This is music of the highest artistic quality, highest artistic excellence. Now, if you look at, at something in, say, the OCP Breaking Bread hymnal, a lot of the music in there is crummy in quality. It has poor chord sequences. The melodies are awkward. They leap all over the place. The rhythms are awkward, you know, constant syncopation and stuff like that. I mean, this music is, frankly, if I were a music teacher, I would, again, reject, 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 right? Just as a music teacher, you know, forget about what the words are saying. And then finally, last thing I'm going to say is there's not just words and quality of the music, but then there's also just the simple criterion of tradition. Catholics take tradition seriously. How our forefathers have have sung the liturgy and how they have, have what they have found to be most suited to prayer is what we should take on and learn from, right? We should have the humility to receive an inheritance that has been tried and tested by so many saints and not to say, no, we're moderns. We need something else. Forget it. Forget about all that stuff. That was what they did in the dark ages, you know, and we need something that's more suited to our contemporary sensibilities. That's just arrogance on our part. Okay. I'm done with my rant. I like it. <laughs> we love your rants. Dr. Peter Krasnevsky joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Uh, we're way in the breach. We're discussing his new book, Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. Uh, Joe, let's uh, not write this second, but let's remember, I want to get to silence, but it, I want to hand it over to you. Uh, three gifts of God for liturgy and for life available at 10 books. Go, Joe. Doc, you talked about Pius X. By the way, another Joe, Giuseppe Sardo. I just had to throw that out there. And he's a saint. And he laid out the type of music that basically we should have in the mass. You talked about the documents of Vatican II, some of the most conservative language out there. Okay? It's written down. Again, I'm going to harken back to the prima facie concept. <laughs> Let the documents speak for themselves. You have a yep. saint who was a pope who wrote something. We should pay attention to that. Exactly. And, and I would add, in regard to this code of legislation that Pius X instituted, um, that code of legislation remains in force, except where it has been modified or abrogated. And there are a few provisions in it that have been officially abrogated. For example, and this is a pretty complicated question, I wrote an article about it in the Liturgical Movement, if people are interested in reading more, but Pius X originally said only men should sing, no women. Uh, and then later on, Pius the uh, Pius the Twelfth relaxed that and said, as long as the choir is not standing in the sanctuary of the church, then women can also sing in the choir. Right? Why was that a big deal? I'll I'll explain it very simply. Pius the Tenth was talking about liturgical a liturgical ministry of of singing where men would be vested in cassock and surplice, which is a properly clerical attire, and they would be singing together, usually in what's called the choir area of a church, which in a cruciform church, like a Gothic church, right, they typically didn't have choir lofts. Rather, the singers would sing down in the front, more towards the altar area, right? And that is, I mean, people, I don't like it when musicians are standing up in front. It's kind of distracting. But in a church, like a cathedral with a choir area, and you have men dressed in cassock and surplice, it's a totally different story. I mean, it, it has a much different effect in that case. That's what Pius X was talking about. But since so many churches have choir lofts, which are at the opposite end from uh, the front and from the sanctuary, 
um, you know, pi and, and there were already many choirs in which men and women were singing parts together, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, that provision of Pius X was relaxed. However, uh, however, Pius X taught that the piano, piano and drums may never be used in church, ever. Okay, that has never been relaxed. That has never been taken off books. Um, and in in the in my book, in, in this book that we're talking about, I have a whole chapter that goes through church legislation about pianos, guitars, drums, other secular instruments, and talks about why they are they should not be allowed in church. I mean, even even apart from the fact that there are documents that speak against having them in church, right? Um, but I actually and- want to explore that piece of it because to me, it's clear. Basically, and I think you laid it out and your book lays it out. Yet, yeah. all of that has been abandoned. And that's not a, that is not my opinion. That's my observation. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Now, people are people. I get it. We're flawed. How do you get away with that? You see, yeah. I'm a man under authority. I work yeah. in a corporate setting. Right. I don't understand that. This is right. something I bang my head against the wall, Peter. I'll be honest with you. I don't yeah. understand that. But what you're talking about is a huge phenomenon in the Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council. Um, and it's a, it's a phenomenon that Cardinal Burke called antinomianism. Love that word. It's a great word. Nomos in Greek means law. So antinomianism is an anti-law attitude. And we see that all over Western civilization right now. I mean, I was just watching a little video this morning on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, but I can watch the videos there um, of, of, a, of a mob in, in Nantes, France, smashing up the windows of a Catholic bookstore. Okay. A, a situation like that is, is a situation of a bunch of young people who have no concept of law. They, they have no love for the law. They don't abide by the law. They're just lawless rebels, just as we saw in the 1960s, like the 1968 Paris riots and so forth. And the law that is the police, the state, is at this point incapable or unwilling of, to stop this kind of thing, right? And really to put an end to this. Um, so in the church, we have exactly the same phenomenon. We've had 60 years or so of antinomianism. That is people saying, either people saying, I don't care what the church teaches, I'm going to do it my way, you know, kind of like a perverse spin on Frank Sinatra, right? I'm, I don't care if there's, there's humane vitae, I'm just going to use contraception or... I don't care, you know, if Pius X or some other pope said that we shouldn't have secular instruments in church, instruments associated with secular forms of music in church. I don't care what they say. We're just going to do it anyway. And then on the flip side, and I'm sorry, but this has to be acknowledged, you also have authorities who are not willing to say, no, uh, you have to follow these rules. If you don't follow these rules, I'm going to get out the big stick. I'm going to get out the paddle. I'm dad. You, you know, uh, th- this is time for, for some, you know, you can't just talk back to me endlessly. I'm going to do something about it. But but in fact, popes, bishops have mostly been hands off that they've let the heretics run wild um, and they've let the, you know, the rock bands in churches and, and well, not everything is as bad as that, but I'm just using that as an expression. They've let all these things happen without any consequences. You know, that's like the worst parenting style possible. Oh, Sonny, you just do whatever you feel like doing. You know, mom and I will clean up afterwards. No, this is the terrible parenting style, you know, but that's what we see, unfortunately, in our fathers, our spiritual fathers. I watched that video from France that you're talking about, Dr. Kwasniewski. And my comment on that, I did a quick comment on that, was if if uh, if those cowards that were doing that to that Catholic bookstore, 
we're surrounded by about 200 Catholic men who think like we do, guess what? They wouldn't have attacked that bookstore. I'm not saying I'm not saying to be violent. I'm saying, how about just be present and, and back people off and say, hey, there's certain things, certain things where you're not going to be allowed to do. Right. Well, I mean, of course, it's hard to know when a group of ruffians are going to attack something. I mean, if they if they announced it ahead of time, then I would say Catholic men should come out wearing some thick clothing, you know, and, and, you know, really get, get into, get into, defend the, the business. But, you know, I, there are some great videos you can watch of Polish Catholics. Poland is, oh, Poland, what a sad story is going on right there. Because right now Poland is being flooded with money from George Soros and other people uh, to promote pro-LGBT, pro-abortion, all the things that are contrary to Polish and Catholic values. But you can find videos of Heroic young Poles were standing defense, standing in defense over Catholic churches, so that these mobs won't come in and defile the church. You know, this is the kind of thing that I, I think the Poles have that fighting spirit. We need to have that fighting spirit too. Absolutely, I want to I want to keep the conversation moving, Doctor K. But I will say this: one of my favorite images from uh, from the last several years, with all of this evil and nonsense that's going on, is a young Polish kid. He's probably about 14, 15 years old. Walks in front of the rainbow procession going down the street with a crucifix in his hand, and he's swiftly carried off by Polish police. That is a brave young man. He did yeah. more in that action than most of us would do. All right. And I'm not saying us, us three, because because obviously we've all been in positions where we've been mocked and spit at and everything else, praying in public and things like that. But that kid, that kid is is a true inspiration that I wanted to throw that out there. Let's keep it moving. Only Dr. K, only because we, we have a limited amount of time. And there are a couple topics that I would love to get to. Um, silence is part of your title. Um, I, I have a big mouth. Joe does. I think you 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 were able to sense that the first time you came on our show. God help you. Uh, but uh, silence is something that that I don't think uh, many of us are able to do effectively. There is a lot of noise out there, unfortunately. Um, and um, so talk about I'm just going to throw it over yes. to you. The importance of silence. Yes. Well, I mean, actually, we're, we're th in a sense, we're three Jersey boys. So silence is not you know, almost not part of our, not our strong suit. <laughs> but anyway, no. So the first point, the first observation I would make here is that before modernity, um, and, and I'm not going to get into the million dollar dispute about how exactly to define that term, but I just, I'll just say something like this before the industrial revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries, um, life was quiet almost everywhere, right? In the country, it was quiet in the towns. It was relatively quiet. You know, maybe you had the sound of a cart rolling along the, the cobblestones from time to time, people shouting at the marketplace. But the point is that every human being would have had quite a bit of silence before electric, electric lights. It gets dark at night. People light the candles. It's a calming effect. You know, you say your prayers before bed. Maybe you pray your rosary. You go to bed. Everything's quiet. You can see the stars, right? This is before the adjustment. This is before... This is before our lives became increasingly filled with noise-making appliances, machinery, vehicles, radios, earbuds, all the rest of it. It's like a constant acceleration of noise. Um, so much so that there's a sound researcher. I read about him. I think it was in National Geographic, but there might have been some, some other publication. He, there's a, there are people who are sound researchers. So they, they're interested in questions like, in this particular case, is there any place in the lower 48 United States that is perfectly quiet anymore? Any place, right? 
And and you might think, well, sure, you just go out into a national park. Well, if the national park, if airplanes are flying over that national park, then that's not that's not the kind of that's not perfect silence, right? Um, so he he came to the conclusion that there were just a handful of places in the lower forty-eight states where you could sit there for a whole day in silence. You know, uh, this is just an amazing fact of of our lives as modern Western people. So what the the conclusion I derived from that is. Now we actually have to make an effort to find and, and to make silence in a way that wouldn't have been true 100 or 200, especially the further back you go in time. Um, it's difficult. I think it's difficult for fallen human beings in general to want to be. You have to be comfortable with yourself to a certain extent and with your place in the world to relish silence, because otherwise silence becomes burdensome. To people, um, uh, it, most of us, I think, when we're in a situation where no, we have nothing to do and nothing's going on, and there's nothing to distract us, we start to feel impatient. We start to look at our watch. We look around. We we look for somebody to talk to. We look for something to do. Right? The idea of just sitting still, you know, Scripture says, "Be still and know that I am God." Right? Um, that's difficult. That's work. It's hard work to get to the point where you can actually be at peace and be at rest in silence. And so therefore, I recommend in the book, I recommend a, a bunch of different remedies for this, practical remedies. And Cardinal Seurat is great about this too. He has a book called The Power of Silence Against the Dictatorship of Noise. Um, but I recommend, for example, that Catholics should try to get to a monastery sometimes, a real monastery or a real religious community. And what I mean by a real religious community is one that's very faithful to its way of life, its rule of life. And therefore observes silence and, and uses Gregorian chant and liturgy, kind of like you were describing, right? Um, a place like Clear Creek in Oklahoma is a great example of that. It's a flourishing Benedictine monastery. If you go to that monastery, you will be enveloped in silence and peace and chant, you know, and chant itself promotes silence. It is a kind of music that calms us and disposes us to want to stay in church after the singing ends, you know. That's that's a beautiful thing about chat. It emerges from silence and it leads to silence. It encourages to live. Um, you know, go to a monastery, listen to chant sometimes. You know, instead of instead of pop music, which you know makes people kind of excitable, right? Well, why don't you listen to something that's going to calm you down? Um, why don't you try to get up? Not you personally, but this is just ideas. Uh, try to get up early in the morning before the rat race begins. Early enough to have fifteen minutes or a half an hour of quiet with your Bible or with a breviary or even with a rosary, you know? Um, well, although it's best, I think, to not to do only vocal prayer, if we're trying to cultivate silence, we also want to just have time when we're just trying not to, to be enveloped in words, you know, mm -hmm. or sounds. Um, so I, I think that, and then of course, finding a place where mass is celebrated with appropriate amounts of silence or appropriate amounts maybe makes it sound too much of a recipe there's no recipe for this but but a, a liturgy that is comfortable with silence that accepts that there will be times during mass when no one is talking and no one is singing right or maybe the priest is talking but he's whispering because he's doing his own thing and you're there and you just get to sort of soak in the ambiance this i think that that again liturgical silence is a way of if we if, we're, if we encounter that regularly, it's a way of habituating ourselves to that. 
I'm going to throw it over to Joe probably for one final question. Dr. Kwasniewski is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing uh, his new book that's out from Tan Books, Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. Thank you for that, by the way, Dr. K. Uh, three Gifts of God for Liturgy and for Life. I will say on Route 3 in Clifton, New Jersey, there is the uh, Holy Face Monastery, uh, mm. Benedictines. And, the, and I was thinking about it as you were describing Silence because they have their behind the altar you'd go through a back room and you go to a room called the hall of saints um and there's these beautiful statues okay mostly our lord and our lady but then there's a whole bunch of other saints uh, elizabeth and seat and all of them anyway there, it's a very low gregorian chant that's playing as you walk in there it might as well be silent but it's like you said you know, just that little low Gregorian chant and being in this place with these with this beautiful artwork, essentially representative of, you know, our Lord, our lady and the saints. I think I think every 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 county in New, every county in the United States should should yes. uh, should follow the Benedictines uh, lead on that. Yes. Yes. You know. But let me hand I, I would also Joe. like to add, Joe, on the way to that monastery, you passed the TikTok diner on Route 3. So that is also— For Taylor ham, egg, and cheese. There we go. Which is, which I, I wanted to just throw that in. But I want well, to just— you, as you, far you get out of the silence, and you go you go down to the diner. It's noisy, but you're going to get a great Taylor ham, egg, and cheese. Joe I, want, I want to expand on what you said about basically silence, the need for it, because I think people—you said it makes people uncomfortable. I think that's an indicator that something is wrong. Because we have to be comfortable with ourselves. We are going to stand before the Lord. And silence, if we're not comfortable there, that should trigger why. God uses that silence. Um, many times I have very good, clear thoughts in the middle of the night. Clear, mm -hmm. like thoughts. Clear thoughts in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Talk about that because I think people are afraid. Peter, of what you just said. They are, don't want that silence. They're drowning that voice out. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the Second Vatican Council talks about conscience as God's voice speaking in the depths of the soul. And it's that's no novel teaching. I mean, you can find that in John Henry Newman, and you can find the, the theological account of that in St. Thomas Aquinas. But I mention it because if you're not aware of the depths of your of your soul, if you're not in a position to listen to what your conscience might be telling you about how you're living your life or a particular thing you're doing in life, um, then I mean, then conscience might as well be useless because what you're doing is you're sort of plastering it over with distraction after distraction. You're trying to stifle the voice of conscience. We all know what that what that's like. Um, we all know that people do that, you know, like basically don't bother me. I don't want to think about it. You know, I, uh, if I don't think about it too hard, I won't feel guilty about it, you know, or something of that sort. So I think, yeah, I think silence is important. It's important for self-knowledge, for self-examination. Those are definitely not things that are prized in our society. In fact, commercialism and consumerism very much depend upon people not having self-knowledge because they depend on people being easy victims to, you know, instant gratification. And if, if people thought even for a few minutes about the shape of their lives and about what they really want, they would realize that they're being taken advantage of over and over and over again by lots of manipulators out there, political manipulators, commercial manipulators, and so on. So it's very much in the interests of modern pop culture that people are not thoughtful they're not reflective they don't acquire self-knowledge but if you look in the in the tradition of catholic spirituality 
and even further back to Socrates, right? But Socrates, you know, liked to quote the Delphic Oracle saying, know thyself, right? Like self-knowledge is the most basic thing we need. Otherwise we're lost, you know? So silence is good for self-knowledge, but it's also, and more importantly, good for becoming aware of the presence of God. God is, there's a Byzantine prayer, beautiful Byzantine prayer, Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, you are present in all places and fill all things, right? God is present everywhere. As Augustine says, he is present. You're the one who's absent to him. He's present to you. You're absent to him, right? So the silence enables us to, to, be, to become aware of his presence and to enter into it um, and, to start, and then to start to do the things that we should do. We can thank him. We can ask him for what we need. We can say we're sorry for what we've done wrong. We can adore him just because he's God, he's awesome, he's worthy of adoration, right? But if, if you don't have any interior space, none of that is going to happen, right? And that's why, incidentally, connecting with our earlier conversation, if mass is celebrated in such a way that it's sort of nonstop singing and speaking and standing and sitting and so forth, just sort of activism throughout the whole thing, it's quite possible for Catholics to go in and out, at, go in the doors and come out an hour later without ever having really prayed once right? um, and that's why i think it's so important for the liturgy to to have a somewhat meditative contemplative monastic atmosphere to it this is what chant gives to it this is what you know beautiful vestments and the priest facing east and all these sorts of things that we could talk about uh you know all of those things contribute to putting your mind onto god where it belongs lifting the mind and heart to god which is one of the oldest definitions of prayer um, that, that's what we need to do. Dr. Peter Kuznetsky, we have about 30 seconds. What are you working on right now? Anything? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I don't know if you know this, but I have a Substack now. Um, I started about three months ago. It's called Tradition and Sanity. So I would definitely recommend for anybody who's listening to this, if you, if you enjoy my work, my books, my articles, check out my Substack. Um, you can subscribe for free or you can be a paying member, whichever you prefer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I publish there a couple of times a week. You say tradition and sanity? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, we, I think we need a healthy dose of both in, in, in our modern world. Dr. K, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Everybody out there at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, please go out and buy Dr.'s book, Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence, Three Gifts of God for Liturgy and for life it's available tan books other outlets uh the usual ones online and also try to ask your local catholic bookstore to carry it. dr k you know you're welcome back anytime great conversation thank you so, thank much. You so much yeah thank you god bless you both god bless you and thank you all out there for joining us at the veritas catholic radio network 1350 on your am dial 103.9 on your fm dial spreading the truth of the catholic faith in the new york city metropolitan area download the app share it with your friends you'll have access to all of our station's content and please, wherever you see Joe and I on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, the whole nine yards, help us out. Click something that's going to help us reach a wider audience. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.